what? We are in week six of our Sermon on the Mount series, and um, we are finally hitting the second of the three chapters. Um, I think I just thought that the, uh, we had plenty of time, and I just really camped on some things in chapter five, but we finally hit um, uh, Matthew chapter six, and next week, you're going to have a break from me, and we're going to have Beck, uh, Pastor Beck, preaching. Next Sunday is going to be amazing. She's going to uh, give her take on the next lot of scripture, and we're going to finish off chapter six next week, and then our final week of the series, we're going to do the whole of chapter seven. And so be ready for a three-hour-long gathering because there's a lot to run through. We'll just get as far as we can. But in chapter 6, we have a bit of a a shift, a real shift in in what Jesus is talking about. Remember in chapter 5, Jesus comes in, and I know I've repeated this many times, but it's a core... Uh, is kind of like the key for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' inauguration message. This is the king stepping into the kingdom and saying, this is how I rule. This is what our kingdom is going to be like. And so he talked about the Beatitudes, and then he talked about being the salt and the light. And then he talked about how, uh, you know, I'm not abolishing the law, but I'm fulfilling the law. I'm filling it up. I am going to show you uh, what the law actually is all about. And then last week, we talked about six different laws that Jesus ran through, the Old Testament laws, and he looked into the purpose behind those laws, which is not just to set boundaries on the outside, but to help us choose and to govern our actions as we live within those boundaries. So we talked about anger, we talked about lust, we talked about divorce, we talked about all sorts of different things that were super important to our lives as we live it out, remembering that Jesus is not giving you a black and white new law, but rather he's helping you understand the law, which is all about living with each other. Yes? Following me so far? So that's chapter five in a nutshell. And you might be asking me, why don't we just do that rather than spend the last five weeks on that? But that's all right. We're in week six. And today Jesus makes a shift in the way in what he's talking about. And what we're going to find in the next three little blocks of Scripture that we're going to read today is a word, hypocrite. And he talks about hypocrisy. And what does hypocrisy mean to you? What, what, what comes to mind when you hear hypocrisy? Seriously, anyone want to call out? There's no prize. But what do you think? Yes, that's classic, right? You say one thing and you do another thing. That's our understanding of hypocrisy. We're going to look into that, and I want you to think about and hold that in mind as we look through these next three blocks of Scripture where Jesus uh, uses that word in describing the kingdom to us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, this is what it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And now the first line in this is already very interesting. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. I want you to think about that. 
Have you ever thought about practicing your righteousness? When Monday hits and you're preparing for your normal everyday life, are you thinking, I've got to practice my righteousness? Now, I looked at this, and at first I thought, oh, this could be really interesting that righteousness needs to be practiced, as in, like, practice makes perfect, right? You know, you're doing something, you're rehearsing something in order to uh, do better. Well, that, I, I thought that would be a really interesting message, but that's not what the practice in this um, uh, verse means. Practice simply means to do. So you perform your righteousness, you do your righteousness. Uh, uh, and, and Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. He doesn't say, do not think that you must practice your righteousness because I have given you all grace. He actually says that you are to practice your righteousness and that is a proper way to practice your righteousness. So as we have spoken about righteousness over our course of uh, lift, we, we often talked about righteousness as a right standing with God, right? Our righteousness is that we are uh, able to be in relationship with God. So why is that something that needs to be performed or done? And I think that people actually were struggling with that because some of the later manuscripts um, that our Bible was translated from, actually, I think they were trying to clarify this word and they actually changed it to beware of giving your arms, as in A-L-M-S, not arms. Uh, is there a better way to uh, alms? All, alms. Give your alms. <laughs> giving your alms in public. So if you read the KJV version, it does say that. It says, uh, do not give your alms in public. And so when I first started looking to this, I was like really confused. I was like, why does one translation say, uh, beware of practicing your righteousness, and then another translation says, beware of giving your alms in public. And I looked into it, and I think that what happened is that the KJV uh, is translated from later manuscripts. It doesn't actually go back to the oldest manuscript. So if anyone actually tells you that the KJV is the only word of God, they are really, really wrong. It's actually like so bad. The KJV is not a bad translation, but it's not the only translation. And it actually uses some later manuscripts because as... Um, archaeology goes on, we're finding older manuscripts, and so we go, okay, the older manuscripts must be, well, not must be, are likely to be closer to the actual words that were originally written, right? You know, that's, that's how it goes. You go to Nonna's recipe for your know, spaghetti bolognese because it's older and it's probably closer to what it originally is supposed to be, right? You don't go to the modern uh, young punk's recipe because that's going to be the modern take on what used to be something that was traditional and wonderful and shouldn't be changed. Anyway, let's... Um, <laughs> And, and, and so the KJV using a probably a newer manuscript actually changed practicing your righteousness to the giving of alms, which I could probably see as practicing your generosity. And so I think that as the church uh, uh, went on and, and they were studying the Word of God, they were going, like, what in the world is practicing your righteousness? And I think that as they looked at the context of the verse, they went, you know what, it looks like generosity to me. Beware of practicing your generosity. And so they changed 
or, or they made a, a little adjustment to try to make it clearer. However, I do believe that that actually loses the sense of what Jesus is trying to say. You see, in chapter 5, Jesus was giving us, um, you know, the purpose of the law, and this is how we are meant to live out. And I think that he was describing what we can call righteous living. Why is it righteous living? Is because we're living according to the customs and the principles and the values of the kingdom where their king resides. Make sense? A king without a kingdom is just dumb. It's not a kingdom. We need a king for the kingdom to be a kingdom. And but for the king to reside in that place, his laws are the most important. And so when we want to live in proximity to the king, we obey the king's laws. Make sense? If you want to stay in Australia, you obey Australia's laws. If you don't like Australia, break the laws and you'll be deported or you're going to be chucked in a jail that you don't need to be in society with everyone else. And so righteousness actually has a very practical outworking. God is not a permissive or absent God who lets you do whatever you want to do. He is not a negligent God, but He's a God who is close and is actually really intimately involved in our everyday life. So practicing our righteousness is living according to the ways of the kingdom. And so when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to study tomorrow, when you do whatever you're doing tomorrow, practicing your righteousness is something that we should be doing. We actually need to be thinking about how it does my life reflect and live out the principles of Christianity. And so Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. But then he says that you do not practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, which is actually quite confusing because just a chapter ago, Jesus said, you are the light of the world and a city on a hill shall not be hidden. So let your good work shine before men. All right? Anyone remember that? I know that was probably like four weeks ago, so long. But Jesus says, let your good works shine before people. And then he says, do not practice your righteousness before people. It's like, Jesus, what are you on about? You're being confusing here. And I think that's where we need to understand that Jesus is talking about hypocrisy here. Because the very next line, he begins, or the next sentence, he begins to, um, no, 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 not that one, that can go back. He goes, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Now, I looked into this, and there is actually no custom whatsoever of people sounding trumpets when they gave. All right, Jesus was being a bit of fun here. It he was like, you, some of you people, you give, and it's like, doo, 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 doo. it's like, well done, you have given. Um, no, that didn't happen. Jesus was poking fun, and he pokes fun at the hypocrites. Now, many of us grew up in church, in this room, right? And when you think of hypocrites, who do you think of? There's a certain group of people I bet most of you are thinking about. Who are you thinking of? The Pharisees, yes? We think that the Pharisees are the hypocrites because Jesus, at maybe some other point, he mentions that the Pharisees are hypocrites. However, there's no mention of the Pharisees in here. 
And so the old picture that I used to get was of the Pharisees who used to tell people exactly how to live according to the Old Testament law, according to their interpretation of the law. And they used to be all like legalistic about stuff, but they were telling people to do stuff, but they weren't doing it because that's what being a hypocrite is about, right? You do not do what you say to do. You talk to talk, but you do not walk to walk, right? And so that was a picture in my mind. I see these like uptight religious people being all like, look at me, I'm so good, I'm so generous, but actually not being generous. The truth is, this verse isn't talking about Pharisees. He isn't talking about the religious folk. He was talking about people who was misusing the religious systems, the Judaic system of the day. Because what a hypocrite is, in a definition, in a proper definition, by the way, hypocrite is a direct use of the Greek word. The Greek word for hypocrite is literally hypocrite, set with a Greek accent. <laughs> I'm not going to say it because I don't know anyone. Hypocrite. Um, yeah, so they couldn't find a better word to translate um, into English, and so they continue to use it. But the word has changed in its meaning. The original usage of the word hypocrite literally means the interpreter from underneath. The interpreter, an interpreter from underneath. Underneath what? Probably a mask, because this word was used to describe actors in the theater. And so that is one of the masks that might have been from that day and age. So they would put the mask on and they would be interpreting the script and they would be performing it. So the word hypocrite doesn't mean you say something but you don't do something. That's how it's used today, but that's not what it means here. Jesus is talking about hypocrites as people who are acting but not really living out. So we are people that act as though we know God, but we don't. We're acting as though we are true believers that have been brought into God's kingdom, but really, we are not. In other words, a hypocrite is a person whose outward action looks good, but the internal will is not in alignment. There isn't true substance in their behaviors, in, in their heart. Let me put this out this way. You can give an amazing amount of money as a big company, and more and more companies are jumping onto this. Your organization gives a whole bunch of money out. Why? Because of tax relief, what you get back. Because of reputation, what you get back. Because it puts you in good standing with society. It's something that pays for itself. Is that truly something that has come out of the goodness of your heart or is it a strategic choice because it makes sense for you? In today's world, it makes more sense uh, to, to live according to some kind of image of generosity than to be a purely money-making organization. Even cafes are all like, we're going to have good days where we're giving away more money and all that comes. Why? It's because... I love it in some way, but not like being generous is now necessary for you to be attractive to people. 
But what I think Jesus is hitting up here is the fact that some of us as Christians, we practice our righteousness not because we truly understand our righteousness, but because we know that looking righteous actually gives us some kind of kickback. And so when Jesus is saying, shine your light before all men, let your good deeds shine before people, it's not because when you shine your light before people, there is some kind of kickback for you. He's actually saying, you look at the reason why you are doing good. You do good not because you will get good, but it's because you are the light. You actually understand who you are and therefore how you are going to live. And so when Jesus talks about the hypocrites sounding the trumpet as they give, he's not necessarily talking about the Pharisees, but anyone in the synagogues, anyone who sees the needy, and anyone who's going like, oh, look at me. I'm so generous. The truth is, the Pharisees probably were not who Jesus was talking about. Because the Pharisees actually did a lot of good things and they were probably living as close as they could to God's ideals. They were misguided, sure, yes, absolutely. But I think the problem with the whole idea of hypocrisy as we know it and linking it to the Pharisees is that we think that there's no need to practice our righteousness. We think that the need to practice righteousness is legalism. But Jesus doesn't talk about it in those terms. We do good because we are in the kingdom and there's a whole life that God has called us to. And so I want you to note that one of the ways that we practice our righteousness is generosity. And I've spoken about this already the Bible doesn't talk about generosity as an above and beyond, but really is about how the kingdom lives. Uh, the, the kingdom life is generous. The kingdom life is necessarily generous. If you can imagine that every single person in the whole kingdom is generous, what a wonderful place that would be. And I think that's what God is trying to build into his people, the church. That we are not looking out for ourselves, but we're looking out for each other. That we're not trying to give in order to receive. And so when we read in the book of Acts that there are some people that try to use the system for their personal gain, Ananias and Sapphira, you can read about this in the book of Acts, they tried to look like everyone else, by selling their property and bringing the money to the apostles, except they kept a portion for themselves because they knew that economically this makes sense. If I look like I'm part of your crew, I'm going to have some benefits for this, but they weren't truly generous. And what did God do? do? He struck them down where they stood. They were hypocrites because they were not true believers who trusted in God. They were people who were trying to use the kingdom for personal gain. So let's go into the next section and let's continue to see what else Jesus talks about with hypocrisy. He says in Matthew, 5, uh, Matthew 6, 5 to 8, and when you pray, and when you pray, 
you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him." So here we go again. So Jesus hits up another aspect of practicing your righteousness. When you pray, when you pray. You know that the early, uh, sorry, not the early, in Judaism, prayer took place three times a day formally. And so when Jesus comes in and Christianity comes in, we have to understand that Christianity was built on um, the, the cultures and the customs and the values of Judaism because the Jews were trying their best to live out what God had said in the Old Testament. And so when we think that we... What am I trying to say? When we take prayer as this individual thing that you do as you feel led to, you're missing the point. Because it's a when you pray situation here. It's not a if you pray situation. It's like, oh no, I'm not gifted with prayer. You know why? Because you haven't practiced it. You know, I'm not good at lifting weights. You know why? Because I don't lift weights. My physical frame is actually probably built for lifting weights. Why? Because I don't run. When I run, I look weird. Apparently I look like a fridge on legs. So my body is probably good at lifting weights, but I'm not good at lifting weights because I haven't practiced. If you are part of the kingdom, you are built for prayer. If you're not good at prayer, it's because you don't pray. It went very silent. Because some people are like, oh, yeah, it should be. Oh, the Jews prayed three days, three days a week, three times a day and they had fixed times that they prayed. I don't believe that we need to follow the strictness of the timing of prayer, but I think the heart behind prayer, they got it. It was a necessary part of their everyday life. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, we need to put in all sorts of systems and structures because uh, uh, look at what Jesus was saying. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Some of the translations talk about do not give endless repetition. Prayer is not about endless repetition. Prayer is not about us just going through the same old words and phrases again and again. Prayer is not about us shouting from the rooftop, look at me, I'm praying. Prayer is about speaking with God and aligning yourself with God. Why do we need to pray every day? It's because prayer brings us back to the heart of God. Why is it the practicing of our righteousness is because righteousness is about us living in communion with God. And how are you living in communion with God if you don't even speak to Him? I've seen marriages where husband and wife, they live together but they don't speak together. Don't tell me that there's a healthy marriage. Some of us treat God in the same way. We speak to Him when we need something past the salt, honey. But do we talk about what's really going on inside? See, prayer is not even about all the petitions and the things that we need. Prayer is about conversations with God. 
So don't tell me you are great at prayer when all that you do is come up with a shopping list to God and say, God, and it might not even be for you. God, I'm praying for this other person, all right? So, so take it easy. This person needs a miracle and that person needs a miracle. Oh, this other person needs a miracle too. I'm being so faithful in prayer. This other person needs a miracle and that person needs... I'm not saying that praying for others is not good. We had a whole series on the session earlier this year. But what I'm seeing when I look at these verses is this sense of the secretness of prayer. And if you notice in the previous section, there was also a secretness in generosity. In fact, when some scholars looked at these passages, these passages in Matthew 6, they called it the hidden kingdom or the secret goodness. Because I think sometimes, even though in chapter 5, Jesus was trying to help us to understand that the kingdom is necessarily communal, is a community, it's us together. But I think in chapter 6, he makes a switch and he then begins to talk to the individuals of each person and says, at the same time, you're not practicing these things necessarily with other people, but it's a personal practice that comes from a genuine heart. We give because there's a genuineness in our hearts because we know that this is what delights God. And so one scholar talks about all of these things as understanding that practicing of our righteousness is not so much about serving other people, but it's about serving God. Because Jesus actually says, when you do these things in secret, it's the Father who rewards you. It's the Father who rewards you. It's the Father who rewards you. No, when you do your generosity, when you do your prayer in secret, not about making a big show, but it's about living in communion with God, is the Father who rewards you. I think sometimes we go too far to the other side where we go like, oh, God's already graced me, I'm not expecting anything. I don't know. The Father wants you to pray, and He rewards you for praying. You know, as a father now, when Sam wants to spend time with me, I want it to be rewarding. There's nothing worse for me than spending time with Sam, but actually not interacting. And actually kind of like, oh, you are such a pain. Sometimes when that happens, I walk away going, what an idiot. What do I want? I want my son to know that being with me is this most amazing experience so that he can keep coming back to me. I think God's the same way. When you pray to him, it shouldn't be like, oh, here we come, God, in the secret place, in my war room, shut the closet door, like, God. It's like, no. It's like spending time with God when you pray. When you pray, have those conversations with God. Well, Jesus actually goes on and he says, so pray then like this. And then he gives the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sin, sorry, and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so very famous. Now I want you to note that Jesus just a few moments ago says, do not heap up empty phrases. And he also says, your Father already knows what you need. And then he gives us this prayer that the, many people have then just gone, my prayer life is saying, our Father in heaven, heaven be your name, but thy kingdom come, thy kingdom, you know, you just kind of like, let's get all these words out and I've done my prayer. Jesus calls that hypocritical. He calls that a waste of your time and his time. <laughs> this is not real conversations that are taking place. Jesus is saying when he says pray then like this, he's saying these are different things for you to consider as you pray. What's the first step? Our Father in heaven. I think this was a radical shift for the people in that day to see God as Father. They're approaching a Father. Do you know that in the early church, there was very little ceremony when it came to the actual church? There was no like kneeling in the church. In the early church, people were not told to kneel. They did not kneel. Why? Because they were coming to Father God. It was only later when pagan practice started to seep into the church that the priests got into like big hats and, and shiny implements and... There's a holy smoke incense thing. Sorry, it's probably more like this than this. I'll be a very bad priest. And so then everyone went, oh, because everyone else kneels to worship their God, maybe we should do the same. But the early church had an understanding that coming to God was actually coming to Father. But the very next line is, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. I'm attributing honor and value to my God, worth. And so we have this duality here where it's Father and it's also God, Holy God. And so people say Holy Father, which is probably right, but do you understand that sometimes there's a tension between those two words and how we are approaching God? Should we be coming to God with reverence? Absolutely. Should we be coming to God as though He's a loving Father who wants us in His arms? Yes. What does it look like? Messy. And Jesus does that in the first two lines, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And when we pray, sometimes it's messy. Sometimes I think we, we need to remember that He is God and a fearsome God. And then there are other times where we need to remember He is a loving Father who accepts us unconditionally. But then it goes, your kingdom come and your will be done. Remember, Jesus is the incoming king talking about the kingdom. The whole kingdom is about what God wants to accomplish. And so when we pray, the Lord's prayer is about us remembering what the kingdom is about. It is, it is all about us remembering that I'm living for the kingdom. And then it tells us, give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because so often what we think we need, we are striving for. We talked about that when it came to lust last week. All our desires, what we're attributing. We're saying, no, 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 God, you're the one that fulfills. 
and you know how to fulfill me. And so when we're praying, that line should be like, God, what am I striving for? What am I pursuing? Help me to know that I need to pursue you and not all of these other things. I know you are my provider, and I'm going to live according to your ways. And then it goes into, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus seems to camp on this, and he comes back to it when he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And we spoke about this in chapter 5. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom is all about relation. Not, it's not all about relationship, but it's hugely about relationship. And so when we are praying, it is not just praying for people that we like. It's actually praying and allowing God to highlight where there are uncomfortable places in our soul that are sticky because someone might have hurt us. So prayer, according to Jesus, requires us to go, oh, there's something there. Help me deal with this, God. All right, and so that is... The Lord's Prayer. And finally, I want to look at the final section we're looking at today, Matthew 6, 16 to 18, and it says, and when you fast, here we go, and when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast. The early church was known to uh, fast one day a week, and then a little bit later, they actually moved to two days a week, and we don't know why. One day a week was likely from Judaism, and then maybe they just went, you know what, we're better than the Jews. <laughs> Sorry, I did not mean to say that. <laughs> they came across really wrong, but they actually upped it. And also, there were all these feasts through the year that the Jews would celebrate that required a fast as well. When was the last time you fasted? And fasting is about us foregoing food specifically because that is an appetite that we have. And so we're foregoing an appetite in order that our hunger would be for God. And so when Jesus says this is a way to practice your righteousness is because we are trying to get closer to God. And so when was the last time you fasted? When was the last time you put aside your appetites in order to pursue God as your primary desire? That's what this is all about. And he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces when they, uh, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received a reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The hiddenness of the kingdom is that we understand that the rewards are from God and I'm pursuing that. So do you understand God as your reward giver? Do you understand that all goodness comes from God? And that's where uh, theologians call this the hidden goodness, secret goodness, and the hidden kingdom because we don't need to practice all these things and look gloomy. There was one time Beck and I, we were, as campus pastors, we were invited to uh, a family's home for dinner. And it was like, oh, cool, awesome, we get to know you. We got there, they put out a spread, and then the wife did not eat at all. Why? And we said, no, there's plenty of food, we're not going to be able to finish this. And she said, oh, I'm fasting. And it was like, weird. It was weird. It was like you invited us over for dinner, and then you choose to fast. On the very time that you, and like it's like when you see someone fasting and drinking water, and then you're like, it's like, 
the practicing of our righteousness doesn't make other people feel awkward. It doesn't make other people feel put off. But I think what shows people how we, that light shines before people is that we're actually living in the reward of God. There is a health and there's a vitality in my soul and in my life that is a light unto people because I have been living out my righteousness that is rewarded by God. See, I think that sometimes we go either end. Sometimes we go too much to one end where we think that God needs to make us prosper and there's never any pain in our lives. And I think that that's extreme and I think that's actually very wrong. But then I think that there's another side to us that we think that God's already given us all that we need, all that we'll ever want, and we just have to live with our normal lives every day from now on. No, 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 Jesus is saying God rewards those who practice their righteousness in secret. How are you coming to God with expectation this week? With the lead up to Christmas, I know that we get busy but a big part of Christmas is that we are remembering that Jesus came, that Jesus was born. I actually saw something that was really quite fascinating. I've not seen this before, but authors in 300 AD, 300, just 300 years after Jesus was born, said that there are records that Jesus was born on December 25th. So all these people that are telling you they're pagan, 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 it's like, well, they're idiots. Well, there is some idea that Jesus was born around December. And so when we celebrate his birthday, you know what's the wackest thing that has happened in my life? When it's my birthday and people say, hey, let's celebrate your birthday, invite me over for dinner, and then they don't say anything about my birthday. It's weird. You sit there and like, I think I'm meant to be celebrated today. I don't even get first dip at the food. It was like weird. I was like, so you invited me over for my birthday, and then you, you know, Jesus' birthday, man. Can we actually, like, treat him like the birthday boy? Man, God, the birthday God. <laughs> Can we actually remember that we are celebrating this season because the greatest thing that ever happened in history took place because God became flesh, and as we do so, as you reflect on that, is there a sense of like, hang on, I need to practice my righteousness. This life that you've called me to live with you, I'm meant to live that out in very practical ways. Generosity, prayer, and fasting. And I think this is where the extreme ends because there are people that do it as hypocrites, as interpreters from underneath their giving, their prayers, and their fasting is all a mask. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't practice these things. But we need to practice them with the heart that says, I want to get closer to you, God. And so this morning, if we can get the band up, we can get the host team ready, we're going to have communion once again. Last week I mentioned Another aspect of uh, church history that I was really intrigued by was that the early church, please give them that, 
the early church didn't practice communion as a remembrance of Jesus' death, but a remembrance of Jesus' victory. And I think that this morning as we take off the cup and take off the bread, this is a moment for us to remember that the life that we are living is in the light of what Jesus has done. We practice our righteousness because we have been made righteous. We practice our righteousness because we understand that God is calling us to live as part of His kingdom. We practice our righteousness because our risen King is able to reward us as we draw closer to Him. Now, the rewards might not look like what you are thinking of and what you are wanting, but I trust that God knows what you need most. I trust that God is able to reward you in a way that no one else can. I trust that His rewards are of a, an eternal kind, of eternal materials rather than temporary stuff. So as you take off the bread and the cup and as you reflect on what we've said, I pray that you see that the victory of Christ calls you to a new life today and forevermore. This is not about, yay, God, your grace has washed my sins clean, and so now I get to do what I want to do. This is about Christ has brought me into righteous living with Him. And so not condemning, not guilting anyone into this, but in the light of what we have read today, what does generosity look like this week? What does your prayer life look like this week? When's the next time you're going to put aside other appetites in order to hone your appetite for God? Because man, this kingdom life is good. This kingdom life is precious. Why don't you take off the bread? And why don't you take off the cup? Jesus, we thank you that you have given us new life. You've given us new hope. Your mercy is anew every morning. And I thank you that you're bringing us into a kingdom life like nothing there's ever been before. I pray to God that we as a church, we value that life. We value those practices. We value those things that we can do in order to see your kingdom come and your will be done. We thank you, Jesus. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.